How you guys feeling? Good. We're going to jump in back into the book of Revelation this morning. Um, we have been slowly but surely working our way through this incredible letter, um, the last book in the Bible. And uh, yeah, it's still early days as we're getting into this book. Um, but this is, this is what God is, is having us do. Um, we're up to letter three out of the seven letters contained in the, sort of the first couple of chapters of Revelation. So that's where we're going to pick up this morning. And uh, once again, I have a letter. Uh, this one's addressed to Pergamum. So you guys ready for this? All right. Um, if you have a Bible, you can open it or you can turn it on. Or you can borrow one of our NIV paperbacks in one of these boxes out of either one of the two center aisles. Um, here we go. This would be Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. It says, And to the church, or rather, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny your faith in me even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So you also have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Yours truly, Jesus. Holy Spirit, help us. I pray that you would be our teacher this morning and help me, Lord, as I am the one teaching from your word. I pray that you would cause our hearts to be opened and receptive to what it is you, you said, you're saying, you're saying to us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, how about that? Dear Pergamum, that one's a bit intense, is it not? Yeah. Um, Pergamum, where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells. Uh, if you've never been a huge fan of Portland's city motto, keep Portland weird, at least we're not Pergamum. Can you imagine? Welcome to Pergamum where Satan dwells. 
Reserve your Airbnb today. That's intense. Let's talk about Pergamum. Um, historic context is always helpful. I think it's especially helpful um, for this particular city, Pergamum. So here's some information. Around 300 BC, apparently Alexander the Great, the great Greek conqueror, conquered the entire region of Asia Minor, which is the region that Pergamum is located in, and ended up making Pergamum the capital city, the jewel of the land, as it was known to be. Over the next 200 years, it became the epicenter of Greek and Roman worship. The archaeologists have excavated hundreds and hundreds of ancient pagan temples in this old capital city. Um, now, I don't think we'd, we'd have enough time if we spent the, the whole morning looking at all the various gods and goddesses that were incorporated into the life and the, the worship rhythms of the people who lived in Pergamum, but there are a few that I want to mention that are, I think, very telling. Uh, for example, one of the, the most popular gods worship in Pergamum was Dionysus, the god of wine, the god of the vine, a.k.a. the liberator. He was known to give freedom via intoxication. Worship involved acts of such extreme sexual perversion that eventually even the Roman Empire outlawed such worship practices, which is kind of saying something if you know anything about the morality of ancient Rome. Um, Asclepius, Another god that was worshipped in the city was known as the god of health, healing, and medicinal relief. He was depicted as holding a snake, so he was the serpent god. Interesting. In terms of the worship ceremony that worshippers would participate in who were looking for healing from Asclepius, um, at the end of the healing worship ceremony, the worshipper would pay the priest, exit the temple, and then write their name on one of the large white stones that were found outside of the temple as a statement that Eclepius had healed them. Another god that was rather uh, popular to worship was the goddess of food and grain. These gods would have fit in quite nicely in Portland, I reckon. The goddess of food and grand worship involved crawling into a giant pit where you were then drenched in bull's blood. Lovely. This signified the washing away of the worshiper's sins and subsequently the healing and overall health of their bodies as well. Of course, um, we mustn't ever leave out Zeus um, and Athena. In fact, there was a giant monument the biggest, the most well-known monument in the city was uh, this throne-shaped edifice erected for the sake of Zeus and his daughter Athena. They, of course, were the father-daughter gods of justice and war, respectively, among many other things. But this was the giant throne-shaped monument set at the top of the hill. And some scholars argue that this was the quote-unquote throne of Satan that John was actually referencing in his letter to Pergamum. 
And then, of course, there was the temple erected for the sole purpose of worshiping Caesar. In fact, Pergamum was the first city in the Roman Empire where Caesar worship or emperor worship began. 29 BC, at the highest point of the city, the first temple was built for the sole purpose of worshiping the temple who at that time was Caesar Augustus. Some would argue that that was what John or Jesus was referring to when he said, you're the city where Satan himself dwells. Who knows? What's the point? Who cares? We all took Greek mythology, right? What's the point? In Pergamum, there was virtually no separation between worship and civic life. There was no separation between spirituality and daily living, participation in society and all that that entailed. Pergamum, coincidentally, also had the second largest library in all of the ancient world. The biggest one being in Alexandria. Apparently there was thousands upon thousands of scrolls and parchments that were contained in this ancient library which means that the Pergamums, they were not simple-minded people. They simply understood that their world was influenced by more than mere material factors. Okay, these weren't stupid ancients. They were, in fact, very well-educated scientists, architects, Builders, leaders, politicians, they were educated people, but they had a worldview that incorporated their civic life and the spiritual realm. I would argue that Pergamum got worship. I believe they perceived worship as something much more complex, involved, in-depth, powerful, meaningful, incorporated than perhaps many of us here today. They got something about the significance and the power of channeling your affections and your resources, your time, your energy, your focus on the things around you and how that was actually a part of worship. And there were deep, meaningful, actual, spiritual implications to that. I believe that they understood exactly what the Apostle Paul meant in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, when he referred to Satan as the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the lives of those who do not obey the true God. Satan, the prince of the power of the air. It was something that the ancients understood about life and spirituality, dedication and worship that I think that we, we don't quite get, if I could just put it out there. They understood that the evil one is at work in the air we breathe. What do you think about that? Satan is at work in the air we breathe. What does that mean? Do we get that? Do you think our city gets that? 
what do you think? I mean, we're, we're Portlanders, metro Portlanders, right? We all live here. We get around. We have conversations. We do internet. Do you reckon, like on a very general scale, Portland and the people that we're living around, us included obviously, get worship, get the significance of like everyday life and how it's very much connected to and influenced by and incorporated in spirituality. This idea of like the separation between uh, you know, the, the sacred and the secular. You know, that's not actually a thing. And we try to make it a thing. But as far as God's concerned, the Holy Spirit's not like not allowed to be involved in certain aspects of civic life, public spheres and real responsibility. How do you view that stuff? How do we view that stuff? What do you think we were doing this morning when we were all participating in led group karaoke to Jesus. You ever, ever feel like that? Like, what is, what, what is, what's actually happening when we're all singing songs together to Jesus? It's powerful. It is powerful. Now, I want to I wanna throw something out. Food for thought. Can we put the next slide up, please? Um, so anyone, like, into podcasts? Yeah, everyone listens to podcasts these days. You don't. You're just... Get with it. Now, good on you. Good on you. Um, so I, I listen to podcasts. I'm not like a, like a podcast junkie, but I find it interesting to just like trying to keep my finger on the pulse of culture in the city we live in. Like what are people listening to? Who are we reading? What preachers are we like binging on? What, what, how are we being influenced? And so occasionally I'll go on iTunes and I'll search like PDX or Portland because I want to see what's the most searched for podcast in Portland, as it were. And so if you were to search PDX on iTunes, what do you suppose the top three podcasts are? Don't cheat. Don't cheat. Keep that phone put away. Top three podcasts. Number one. Next slide, please. PDX Witch Guild. Top and this is not like a, oh, it's October, it's a Halloween thing. This has been number one for like a long, long time since I ever even thought to check. What do you think number two is? Any guesses? Don't cheat. What's that? Coffee. That's not a bad guess. Didn't make the top three. Let's go to the next one. Unzipped PDX. Um... It's basically a podcast, if you're really into any and all things sexually perverted, this is your podcast. That's, that's basically all it is. Do not waste a single second of your life checking this out. Um, that's just all it is. So, witchcraft, sexual perversion, what do you think number three is? I so love that this is number three. This is actually encouraging. Any guesses? Not a bad guess, but no, nope. It actually has quite a bit to do if, like, the actual word PDX shows up in your title, which Bridgetown doesn't. Not a bad guess. Let's go to the next slide. Door of Hope. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that encouraging? So, a lot of people interested in witchcraft, a lot of people in, um, interested in sexual debauchery of all sorts and kinds, and a whole lot of people interested in what Door of Hope 
our friend church has to say about Jesus, which is super encouraging. Here's the point. Guys, the city we live in, they're well tuned in to spirituality, various forms of worship, and, and all sorts of other things. As a church, like, are we aware of the air we're breathing? Like, how, how, how much do we understand of the power of the prince of the air? How well do we understand what we're actually participating in when we worship the king of kings, Jesus, who conquered death? When we're singing songs to our kings, when we're engaging in sung worship, which is certainly not the only kind of worship, what's happening in the spirit realm, as it were? Do we understand that? That's a good question to ponder. I think Portland gets it. Pergamum got it. And I would argue that we're living in a kind of 21st century Pergamum. And the challenges still remain. So, in the letter, Jesus said, you guys are doing well. Some, some of you are standing firm in your allegiance to me, to Jesus, like Antipas. Antipas, according to church history, was the first bishop of Asia Minor, ordained by the apostle John himself. And he ended up becoming a martyr because he refused to relent when it came to, will you, will you not remain faithful to Jesus? That's who they say Antipas was. But there were some who were beginning to go the way of Balaam, quote unquote Balaam. Who on earth is Balaam? You guys ever read Numbers? Check it out. Balaam was essentially a mercenary prophet. He was a mercenary prophet. He was a prophet for hire. And here's the story. So Balaam was hired by Balak, the ancient king of Moab, to pronounce a curse over God's people, Israel. And although he was more than happy to take Balak's money, Balaam was literally restrained by God from cursing his people. In the end, however, it was Balaam who taught the Moabite king that all he had to do, really, was to simply tempt God's people. Tempt them to merely compromise. You don't, you don't have to, like, curse them flat out. Just get them to compromise a little bit. Entice them to participate in our worship. The worship of other things. Through mere participation of the various worship activities around them, God's people would eventually give themselves body and soul over to the very forces that their God, Yahweh, was leading them to triumph over all along. It went really, really bad for God's people at that junction in their history. And, of course, regarding the Nicolaitans, you might remember this from a couple weeks ago, they were the ones who viewed God's mercy and kindness simply as an excuse to continue indulging in all sorts of perversion, intoxication, greed, etc., while claiming to be faithful to Jesus. It's that whole idea of just using God's grace as if it was some sort of cheap ticket to do whatever you want. How tragic, how ironic. Um, how sad is that? 
So what does that have to do with us? Okay, so that's the big question. A whole lot of information, a whole lot of thoughts, a whole lot of care. But what's the point? What's the bottom line? Like, what are we talking about here? What do we do with this tomorrow morning? Two things. Number one, we, my brothers and sisters, need to wake up and become aware of the air we're breathing. We need to smell the coffee. Now, let's not bring coffee into this. We need to become aware of the, the spiritual realities around us. Many are slowly breathing in the spiritual carbon monoxide of a world that's perfectly happy to simply stand by while the church dabbles in religiosity. Do you know what I mean by that? While we're breathing in the carbon monoxide, that scentless poisonous gas of other kinds of worship, dabbling with this and that, compromising, the world is happy to stand by while we play church and obsess over religious moralism. They're happy as long as no one starts talking about the reality of sin, judgment, eternity, our need for forgiveness, healing, and the fact that there is no other God outside of Christ who left his throne in heaven who came down to live among us, who died for us and came back to life proving with empirical force that he was who he claimed to be and that he is the one we're truly all looking for. There is no other God like Jesus. That's offensive to some. That's when things get interesting. That's when people are no longer happy to stand by and let Christians do their little religious things. As long as we're happy to merely dabble in religiosity, spiritual forces of wickedness that pervade the air we're breathing and living in are happy to let us do our thing. But as soon as we start to worship Jesus as the God who came down, as the God who left his throne, as the God who became one of us, as the God who died for us, as the God who raises himself up and he says, I am the king of kings, I am the Lord of lords. Every other so-called God is a farce. I have what you're looking for. Tragically, tragically, and I don't mean this to sound mean, I love you guys, but I think this is true. Tragically, so many of us are willing to barter with other quote-unquote gods for mere trinkets. We compromise, we participate in things that are actually forms of, of worship that have nothing to do with the king we serve, the Jesus we follow. We barter with the gods of this age for trinkets, a little cash, a little security, a little individual comfort, 
mixed in with just a dab of Judeo-Christian moralism when Jesus is inviting us to give up everything and start living like love-bent revolutionaries. Kingdom ambassadors declaring and demonstrating to the world that Jesus is the true and better king. He rescues us from futility and leads us to the life we're all looking for. This is what Jesus is inviting us to be a part of. He doesn't just say, oh, those other so-called gods aren't real. They're not actually gods, but they're real, all right. And Jesus is saying, I have come to defeat them. I've come to dethrone them because I am the only true and right king of the universe. And those other things that you're willing to barter with for trinkets, you know what they're really after? Your soul. They don't work for free. They expect something, everything in the end in return from you. And Jesus, he came paying the price for us. He didn't come to get something from us. He came to bring lost sons and daughters home. He paid the price for us. And he says, don't worship any other God. They're out for blood. I already spilt mine for you. And he says, if you don't repent, I am going to declare war. That's intense. That's serious business. That's how God sees the air we're breathing. That's how he views these gods who would try to entice us in worship and allegiance. Now, I know that some of you are like, dude, that's just what are you on? Okay, like that is so, <clears throat> I'm thinking about like the deadline I got at work next week and you're, you're on about invisible forces of evil. Yep. I think we need a revelation. That's the, the nature of a revelation. It's an apocalypse. God says, church, listen to me. Listen to what the Spirit says. I want you to see what I'm seeing. I want you to perceive reality as it really exists. The air you breathe, it's spiritual in every way, shape, and form. God is calling us to live Radically different lives. Oh, and by the way, I had a beer Friday night. Okay? So in case you're wondering, like, hang on a second. Are we talking teetotal here? Like, where are you going with this? No, I'm not, I'm not suggesting we all get weird and, like, freak out. And I'm saying when we're living our lives, when we're living our lives, when we're watching our shows, when we're drinking our hops, when we're smoking our whatever, hopefully not, Wake up. Wake up. What do you think you're doing? What do you think you're participating in? Do you not know that this is how God's people have always been enticed? And we're called to be different. We're called to worship a different kind of God, a better God. A lot of people get really uncomfortable when I refer to Jesus as a better God I've always said, so I've, I've been following Jesus for 20 years now. I was 24 years old 
when Jesus came into my life and he, he, he rescued me. He rescued me. He forgave me, he cleansed me, and he got me on this journey. I've been following him ever since. And at some point along the way, the thought did cross my mind. What if I'm wrong? Have you ever wondered that? What if I'm totally deluded? Rose from the dead, pretty good proof, pretty compelling. But what if I'm wrong? We'll find out. We'll find out. We're all going to find out. I will say this, though. I have yet in 20 years found another God that's better than the God who's revealed himself in Christ. There is no other God that comes down off of his throne to give his life for his people. He doesn't charge us for it. He paid the price for us. There is no God better than that God. He's the only God worth worshiping and giving our entire lives to. So you show me a better God and I will consider changing my mind. But I'm utterly convinced at this point it's not going to happen. Not going to happen. Jesus is the best king. He's the one. You talk about freedom. You talk about the liberation, liberation via intoxication. Jesus comes along and says, you want to get drunk? Drink the spirit. Indulge on my love. Get drunk in my presence. You want to experience a joy, a freedom? You want to worship the God of food? The God of, if there was ever a God in Portland, it would be the goddess of food carts. I'm absolutely concerned, <laughs> convinced. Jesus says, I have the satisfaction you long for. Your desire is 100% valid. You're hungry. You long to have sex with another human being. Good. That, that, that means your body is working exactly the way God designed you. You long for that intimacy. Good. That's a sign that we are created for intimacy with each other and our God. That means we've been created in God's image. This is Genesis 1 stuff. There is a very specific, particular, God-ordained way in which we are to enjoy these things, experience uh, fulfillment in our desires, the other gods will compete for our affection. They say, you want, to, you want sexual satisfaction? Come to my temple. I've got what you need. And Jesus says, no, no, don't do it. I have the intimacy that you were created for. Not only can you experience with me, but I'll teach you how to experience it with others in a way that leads to life. Eternal life. He gives us the hidden manna and a white stone with our new name written on it. The hidden manna, that's, that's the sustenance. That's the food. That's, that's the, the longing. And the white stone with our name written. You know, in the ancient um, Roman world, white stones were used for all sorts of things, according to Wikipedia. One of the things they're used for in a court of law, if uh, someone was being sentenced and the jury would, would convene and, 
if the, the person, if the defendant was given a black stone, they're, 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 they're done. If they're given a white stone, then they've been pardoned. Jesus gives us a white stone because he suffered for us. He paid the price for our sins, and he writes our name on it. So I, I went outside last night, and I painted a stone white, and I wrote three words on it, and I'm not going to tell you what they are because these are words that God spoke to me. It's not my name. It's my new name. It's who I am in Jesus Christ. It's not the old Simon. I'm still me. My personality is intact. My sense of humor is intact. You're welcome. <laughs> still being sanctified big time. But I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. God has given me a new identity. That's what we're looking for. That's what we're really looking for. You want to know who you are? Figure out who or what you're worshiping. That's where your identity lies. Jesus wants to give you a white stone with your new name written on it. There's one other point. There's two points, right? There's one other point. This one will be shorter, okay? Number two, we must understand that Jesus, in this letter to Pergamum, isn't just talking to the troublemakers. This, this is, oh my goodness, this is very subtle, but guys, this is so, so important. He's not just talking to those people in Pergamum. He's addressing the church. And he says, my problem is that some of you have, are holding to the teaching, teachings of Balaam, the teachings of the Nicolaitans. But he's talking to the church. He's saying, look, I'm giving you a chance to repent. But I'm not just pointing the finger at like those people. I'm addressing my family. The implication is that, guys, we're in this together. We're in this together. We're family. Some of us may be struggling in all sorts of difficult, sad, hard, complicated, frustrating ways. And I can't simply write them off as like, well, that's, you know, hey, good luck with that, bud. I'm fine. That's not family. That's not how God addresses us. That's not brothers and sisters. He's addressing us all because of the some who are compromising. In the life of a Jesus follower, there really is no such thing as private spirituality. It's all a family affair. So I want to ask you a few questions. And then I'm going to invite our worship team up once again. In fact, I want to ask you one question. This is, I would say, one of the most important, powerful, challenging questions that God asks us in all of the Bible. I'm talking about Genesis chapter 4, verse 9. Where is your brother? Where is your brother? He's addressing Cain 
The guy who, out of a jealous fit of rage, murdered his brother Abel. And God comes to him and he says, where is Abel, your brother? And you, do you recall how Cain responded? Yeah. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the answer is a resounding yes. Yes. Where is your brother? When was the last time you called your brother or sister in Christ during the week just to check in on them and ask them how their life's going? We're not in this alone. Some are struggling. Some of us in this room are just failing left and right, and we hate it. We're, we're riddled with shame. And you need a brother or a sister to come along boldly, lovingly, patiently, care, and say, where are you at, brother? Not geographically, like, where are you at? How are you? How are you doing? How are your relationships coming along? Are you receiving love? Are you growing in love for the people around you? Are you getting the sustenance you need from your heavenly father today? Are you getting your daily bread? Are you meditating on God's word daily? What is he saying to you? Do you still have the white stone he gave to you? The one with your new name on it? Are you living like it's still true? Are you tackling the trials of life as a beloved son or daughter of the king? Or are you listening to the droning whispers of the liar that say you're worthless, damaged, ugly, unforgivable, and too insecure to ever really know deep, meaningful, lasting relationships? Are you giving in to the temptation to get your desires met in a way that leads to shame and isolation? Or are you fighting the good fight, resting in God's grace, shining light into dark places, loving those who hate you, blessing those who curse you, forgiving those who hurt you? Are you being filled with all the fullness of God daily? Where are you, my brother? How are you doing? Here's the challenge, church. We need to be this kind of family. Where during the week, I'm thinking about my brother or my sister, and I'm reaching out, and I'm saying, where are you at? How you doing? Talk to me. How can I pray for you? I'm thinking about you. I care about you. I missed you at church last week. Come to our ecclesia, our small group, Wednesday night, Thursday night. I care about you. We're in this together. We're family. That's, that's called um, discipleship. We're discipling each other. We're encouraging each other. We're building each other up. We're speaking truth to each other, sharpening each other, reminding each other, this is who you are in Christ Jesus. Where is your brother or your sister? Or are you simply here just to get your needs met? Do you understand that you have a specific and essential role to play in the family of God? You being here matters. Your serving matters. 
Your prayers matter. Your faithfulness matters. Your willingness to spend time with people in this room, outside of this room, really, really matters. Your personal habits matter. Your willingness to befriend someone who doesn't know a single person in this room matters. You making eye contact and smiling at the painfully awkward person who feels like the church pariah this morning really matters. You know how much eye contact and a smile really, really matters in life? Do you know how many people I pastorally counsel in this room because they feel invisible simply because no one will make eye contact with them on a Sunday morning? And to be fair, they're, they're grossly insecure and we all need help with that. But it matters. We're family. We're together. You matter. You matter. You matter. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have died for you. You really, really matter. You are your brother's keeper, and so am I. Can I invite our worship team to come up, please? And can we stand together? You're now listening to Grace City Portland.